Take out your Bible, if you would, and open it to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we are working our way through the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. And Jesus Christ has a unique message for each church. Unique message for the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna and the church at Pergamum and today the church at Thyatira. Unique message for each church, each one of these literal local churches in Asia Minor, and a unique message, or actually several unique messages, a comprehensive message for the whole church, the church in Asia in that day, and the church that has been ever since, even our church today. And so I'm going to ask you that as we read these words, that you would stand, and I'm going to ask you to follow along with me as you Stand to read. This is chapter 2, verse 18 through 29. I, I believe that Jesus' words to us today might hit us right between the eyes. So let's read it together. Just follow along with me. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, The rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he that overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus ends the reading of Jesus Christ's words to the church at Thyatira and to us today. You may be seated. Here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to walk us through this letter. I'm going to do that fairly quickly. I'm going to walk us through the letter, and I'm going to use the the outline that we have given you to to do that. So take that out if you have it with you. If you stuck it in your Bible, we gave it to you over the last few weeks. It looks like this. If you don't have the outline that we are using to work through these letters to these churches, that's fine. It's going to come up here on the side screens. And if you want one of these, you can grab it in the arcade on your way out. So I'll walk us through this letter in this way, Christ as a statement about the character of Christ and then his words to the church, his commendation, his rebuke, 
his exhortation and his promise. And after we walk through the message to Thyatira, as we go through the text, and we have a a better grasp on what Jesus was saying to them in antiquity, then we will step back into the present and reflect on what Jesus is saying to us. Two Two things that I think we can take from it and apply to our lives today. One about the church, that is one about you and me, and one about the deep, rich character of Jesus. Now that should be good news because I started, when I started working through this passage, I started with 37 observations. So I narrowed it down to two. So that's good. Here we we are. That would take us till tomorrow morning at breakfast, and I didn't want to keep you that long. So here we are with two, one about us and one about Jesus Christ. Let's go through it. Christ does. We see right here in verse uh, 19, verse 18, right in the middle actually, the Son of God, Christ as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. You may remember when we looked at these two phrases in chapter 1, they're repeated here in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we said that these phrases are symbolic of Jesus. This is not what Jesus looks like. This is what Jesus is like. This is symbolic of his character. Jesus sees eyes like a flame of fire. He He has omniscience. He sees all things. He sees throughout the earth. He sees in a way that penetrates the depths of our hearts. He sees and he knows even the hidden recesses of our heart, the hidden sin that is in our heart, which is terrifying, isn't it? It's terrifying and then he knows the darkness that is within us and is also very comforting because he seal he sees not just to expose not just to judge but to heal he seals he sees to heal us he sees to cleanse us he sees to redeem us and restore us to relationship with god his seeing eyes his feet with burnished bronze that is his all powerful his omnipotent feet who are swift to pursue, who move about the earth, who engage in our lives, who intervene, who are strong and mighty, who stamp out evil. This is the character of Jesus Christ. He will not be swayed. And it is he, the omniscient, the omnipotent son of God who commends this church. And he commends them this way. This is the second part of, this, of the outline. And we see this in verse 19. He praises their deeds, specifically their love, their trust in him, their faith, their service, and their perseverance. He praises them for their perseverance, their enduring patience in the face of persecution and suffering under the iron rule of the emperor Domitian who hated Christians. And made himself be called. He forced them to call him the son of God. Part of the reason that Jesus says here, the son of God, I am the, don't confuse the indefinite article, a son of God, Domitian with the, the definite article, the son of God, the one and only divine Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable church. And Jesus says to them that, that they are growing and maturing in the things that they're good at. 
that they are better today than they were before in their love and in their patience and in their service and in their faith. It's a remarkable church. I, I would love for this to be said about Fellowship Bible Church, to be, this to be said about us, that we are known, that Jesus Christ would cast his gaze upon us and, and he would say to us, you know what you're great at? You're great at loving each other. You know what you're great at? You, you are great at trusting me. Oh, I wish that were said of my own life. You're, you're great at enduring and persevering. You are great at serving one another and serving the community and you're maturing in that. You're growing to maturity in those things. There is not a much better list. In fact, it would be hard for me to come up with one. But of course, the church in Thyatira, like the other churches, is not perfect. Like our church is not perfect. It's, fact, it's far from it. It's, it's very far from it. In fact, they have a fatal flaw and the results are devastating. And Jesus rebukes them for it. That's the third part of this outline. Here's what he says in verse 20. I have this against you that you tolerate Jezebel. Now we think Jezebel was a a prominent woman in the church, probably a prominent businesswoman in the church, a leader in the community. She was prominent in the church and she was likely not named Jezebel. That's probably Jesus' name for her because he compares her and he wants to show the likeness between her and Queen Jezebel of the Old Testament. The story we find the queen of King Ahab in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings, the evil queen Jezebel. The evil queen who is very corrupt and very immoral who introduced the northern kingdom of Israel to the prophet Baal and statues to Baal and the worship of Baal preeminated throughout the land, throughout the land of Israel because of the leadership of this queen, Thyatira. Your problem is you tolerate Jezebel and she leads my people astray. She teaches false doctrine in the church, in my church. She leads people to immorality and to idol worship. She leads my people into immorality and idol worship, and I won't stand for it. And because I am a righteous and a just God, I will make her suffer. Bed of illness or the bed of sickness there, it's it's akin to suffering, not necessarily illness specifically, but suffering. I, I will make her suffer. I will make the ones who follow her into adultery, I will make them suffer and I will kill her children. Her followers is implied here. It's not her literal children, but those who follow her. The literal phrase actually is, I will kill them with death. Now, if you hear that, if you read that, and it doesn't make you swallow hard, you need to read it again. There is no misunderstanding the severity of the judgment of Jesus Christ. Jesus hates sin. He hates it. Now, lest we are tempted to throw this church under the bus, like, my gosh, why is this teaching being allowed in the church? Where's the church leadership? Where where are the church people? Why, Why are they not stopping this? Lest we are tempted to do that, you need to know that this is 
not just a sin issue in the church. This is also an economic issue. If you reject the teaching of Jezebel, then you place yourself at risk of suffering financial disaster. How how can that be true? Well, this town, Thyatira, is not very big, but it was a very prosperous commercial center. It was the center of the trade routes. In fact, it was known as the manufacturing hub of Asia Minor in the time. Trade routes came through there, and they were known for their large number of trade guilds. So there were guilds for linen workers and wool workers and leather workers, all kinds of fabrics, fabric dyers, those that colored fabrics for the sale of fabrics to all the other cities in Asia Minor. There were potters and bakers and bronzesmiths and, and many, many others. All these trade guilds are similar to labor unions today, only in this case, that if you wanted to work, if you wanted to work, there really was no other option. You had to join one of these trade guilds. Whereas today, you might join a labor union for the benefits that you perceive it would give you. But there are other options for work as well, not in Thyatira. You probably weren't going to make it financially unless you were a member of the guild. And membership in the guild required that you participate in the gatherings, the social gatherings of the guild. See, in the day in Thyatira, the social gatherings of the industry and religion were all one and the same. So these gatherings, these social events, these celebrations, these festivities, you had to participate in. And in those gatherings, they began with idol worship and they ended with sexual immorality. Now, here's the tension. Even if you don't get caught up in all the idol worship, even if you just eat a little bit of the meat that's sacrificed to idols, and even if you don't get caught up in all the immorality, you try to keep your distance, you can't go to a guild meeting without at least tolerating that behavior. You can't go to a guild meeting without passively endorsing those things. Of course, on the other hand, if you don't go to the guild meetings, then you get kicked out of the guild, you get rejected, and you can't provide for your family. And to top it all off, there's a woman, a prominent woman in the church, a business leader in the church, that's teaching that all these things are okay. That we can allow for all the doctrine that we know to be true, and we're not going to deny that, with this false, this new doctrine that says we can allow for those things. Those things are allowable together. You can understand why this was such a challenging proposition. Literally, for the tradesmen and women in the day, it was Jesus or your career. But Jesus says, this is not just a challenging proposition. This is a major problem. When it comes to biblical doctrine, there is no both and. There is truth and there is untruth. And I cannot and I will not allow anything in my church except for the truth. Can you feel the weight of this? It's going to turn to us in a few minutes. This is a very serious and sobering rebuke. 
Now, Jesus follows that rebuke with an exhortation. That's the fourth part of the outline. It's an exhortation to those who do not hold this teaching, those in the church who do not follow in the ways of of Jezebel. We see it in verse 24. Here's his exhortation to them. He says, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. No other burden. What does that mean? It just simply means this. Meaning there is no other burden on you except to hold fast to what you already have. Except to hold fast to love, hold fast to faith, hold fast to patience, and hold fast to perseverance, and hold fast to continuing to grow in your faith, to continuing to change into the image of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more than that. Hold to that. No other burden will be placed upon you. And if you do that, If you overcome, here's the promise, last section of the outline, the end will be different for you. In the end, I will give you authority over all the nations. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Even with all the trade activity, Thyatira was still a, at best, a very average-sized town. A very average-sized town, and by all accounts, the church in Thyatira was small. And of course, the faithful within the church were even smaller still. And Jesus says to the most insignificant of all the seven letters, to the most insignificant of all the seven churches, the church that has been marginalized and now has been compromised, he says to that church, I will give you rule over all the nations. Now in the day there happened to be rule over all the nations. It was Roman rule. They knew the oppression of Roman rule. Jesus says to them, this little bitty church in Thyatira, not for long will they have rule because you will have rule and the church with you will have rule over all the nations. And what's more, Jesus says, I will give you the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, we don't know. We're not sure. We're not sure for certain. Lots of scholars that disagree on on this, uh, all over the map on this. But there is a bit of prevailing evidence, and this is where I would fall. There's, There's some prevailing evidence that would say that the morning star is Jesus Christ himself. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, at the end of this book, Jesus Christ refers to himself as the bright morning star. So that would be the key interpretation for this view. And I think it's right. And if it is right, here's what's fun about this. What's fun about this is that the morning star, it's typically Venus in our skies. It's typically Venus actually in in antiquity. So it's Venus in the early morning hours, 2, 3 a.m. The the faint light of Venus begins to shine and gets brighter and brighter into the morning. And, and, And Venus, as it shines into the darkest part of the night, it declares that dawn is coming. It declares that morning will Come And in antiquity, they viewed this morning star, it was symbolic of sovereignty. In Roman times, it was symbolic of victory, which of course is what the book of Revelation is all about. The absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ and the glorious victory that will come with him in the end. So the morning star declares that the dawn will come 
and the dawn has never failed us. And the bright morning star, Jesus Christ, declares that he is coming again and his word has never failed us. There is great reward for the faithful in the church. However big or small, the reward is the rule and the authority with Jesus Christ and his reign for eternity to come. Okay, now, two principles from the text. We'll step out of antiquity back into the present. And what is it that that Jesus Christ has to say to us? Here's the first. The church, you and me, the church can be more tolerant than God. And it costs us more than we imagine. Comes right out of the text. Simple. The church can be more tolerant to God and it costs us more than we imagine. We live in a world today that demands tolerance. Everything must be accepted except for the people who don't accept everything, right? That's us. Tolerance is paramount, yet tolerance for the things that run contrary to the ways of God and to the doctrine of God are fatal in the life of the believer. It costs us to step in that direction. It costs us our joy. It costs us relationship with Jesus Christ, face-to-face with his righteous anger, detached from his mercy and his grace. It costs us great pain and suffering. The harm that we inflict to ourselves, harm that we inflict to those around us, the discipline of a just God, The cost is very great. And yet the church, we are prone to tolerance. We are. Let me tell you what it looks like for us because it may not be just what comes in your mind when I say that. This is not one huge leap from sincere faith all the way over into idol worship and immorality. By the way, idol worship is simply placing anything that seems to make you happy or you think will make you happy above God. It's just a priority issue. That's what idol worship is. Here it took on a very specific form and and an, an idol, a son of God named Apollo. For us, it's anything that we place above God. We don't make that leap over a lunch. No, no, we don't do that. This is far more subtle than that. This is the pounding of the waves against the seashore eroding the coastline over time. This is the constant refrain of social agendas in opposition to biblical truth. This is the believer even who invites you to consider ways that run contrary to God's ways. This is the believer who allows a friend to live right at the edge of flirtation. This is a growing passivity to the social and moral and cultural issues of of our day because it's just apathy like that train has already left the building so I'll just step away from the conversation. That's what it looks like in our lives. Our definitions get broader. Our proximity to Jezebel gets closer and what was what just a bit of tolerance has led us into greater and greater sin. And I would say to you this morning that all of us 
live at the edge of this very slippery slope. I would suggest that, some, that all of us are somewhere on this very slippery slope. You're, you're the pharmacist that's wrestling with whether or not to sell the morning after pill. Or you're the business leader that has allowed greed to kind of get into your group and it's just become just a little part of you. And so that greed leads you to take advantage in some way of, of someone else. It's the ministry leader who passively endorses drinking to excess. Or, or it's the believer, you know, who, who lives right at the edge. I mentioned it a moment ago, of flirtation. These things get broader. We suggest, I am, that every one of us lives on this slope. Maybe there's something in your mind right now that the Holy Spirit has made you aware of, even in this these moments, it might be just stirring in you. I tell you, it's been true for me this week. I, I've been walking through this text, and this text is heavy. It is sobering, and it's convicting. And as I was walking through it, I, I just became aware of something in my own life. One place that I've just gotten more casual over the years, a bit more tolerant toward. And even though I wasn't participating in it this week, it came up, and I can tell, I could tell that it was confusing to my wife and kids. I could tell that it was leading them just to step away from the gospel, not a step toward the gospel. It's true in every single one of our lives. And it's true because Jesus is saying to us that we are a church, Tyre is a church, that just ever so slightly can loosen our grip ever so tight, ever so lightly or simply can begin to allow for other things to just kind of enter our mind that might run contradictory to the ways of God. You see, doctrine really matters. Loosen our reins on biblical doctrine and you'll find yourself standing right in the middle of harm's way. Daryl Johnson says it this way, if there's any compromise in the arrangement with Jesus, it is always the relationship with him that gets shortchanged. And that cost is far too much. The church can be more tolerant than God and it can cost us more than we imagine. And second principle, in repentance, God is more merciful than we could ever imagine. Look at me at verses 21 and 22. Jesus, in his letter, has rebuked this woman Jezebel and those that follow her. And he says this about Jezebel in verse 21. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent because of her immorality. Throw on her bed of sickness, commit adultery with her, face great uh, tribulation, unless they repent. Repeated two times right in the middle of the letter. There is a time to repent. Jesus gives mercy for those who will repent. And I just want you to know this, Jesus is never hasty in his move toward judgment. Never. Jesus holds out. He waits in the hope of our repentance. Now, this is incredible. This is a church who is allowing false doctrine to be taught in the church that is leading the church to great sin. This is a woman in the church a woman who the text says has aligned her ways with the thoughts of Satan, the deep 
thoughts of Satan. A woman who is as evil as Queen Jezebel, who has killed every prophet of God except for one, and she tried to kill that one, who has introduced the prophet Baal to the people and sent 850 prophets of Baal to overwhelm the one prophet of God. This is a woman who is trying to completely rid the entire region from the word of God. And to this woman, the church at Thyatira, and to the church itself, Jesus is merciful. He's merciful. It'd be hard for us to offer mercy in that place. Now, Jesus, he's merciful. His character oozes with mercy. Even for Jezebel, Gives her time to repent. For those that follow her, he gives them a chance to repent. You see, our deeds on earth, good or bad, our deeds on earth, they really matter to God. But they don't matter as much as our repentance. Our repentance is primary to Jesus Christ. Our deeds matter. They're at the start of this letter, they're at the end of this letter, but right in the middle... The things that makes our deeds, especially our evil ones, acceptable, go away, remove. Our is our repentance. Jesus judges sin, we know that, but it's actually better to say that Jesus judges unrepentant sin. It's not the sinner, it's the unrepentant sinner that faces the severity of God's Judgment. So we know here that the pathway back from tolerance is repentance. Our shame is undone in our humility before Christ. I don't know how many of you remember the movie, the last Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade. But in the movie, they're in the pursuit of the Holy Grail. And by them, I mean Indiana and his father. They're in the pursuit of the Holy Grail, the cup of Jesus Christ. And, and at the end, the pursuit becomes a must, becomes necessary because... Indiana's dad got shot and he's going to die unless Indiana can find the grail and give him a drink to restore his body. And so Indiana has to go through this gauntlet of things to get to the room that holds the holy grail. And he's going through this gauntlet. There's this one scene where he's reading from his father's journal and he's he's repeating this phrase out loud to himself. The penitent man will pass. The penitent man will pass. Penitent man will pass. And just before a razor blade, a sharp blade tries to cut Indiana Jones in two, he goes to his knees. The penitent man will pass. It's a great picture of repentance, symbolic of repentance on our knees. And when we are on our knees, we miss the severity of the judgment of a righteous and just God. And we experience the overwhelming character and nature of his mercy and his grace. Now, here's the thing. I'm sure most of you would agree with what I just said, that repentance is the means to mercy, that repentance is the means to life abundant in Jesus Christ, yet we are a people who don't like to repent, a people who don't want to repent, people who don't want to admit that we've been wrong or, or to, we, live, we try to live in such a way that we don't have to repent. And 
I'm not talking about general repentance. We all do that. Like, okay, I generally, genuinely and generally repent for my sins in their entirety. I believe that the blood of Christ covers my sins, but I'm talking about the specific day-to-day kind of repentance. Repentance for the tolerance or the immorality or the idol worship in our lives. That kind of repentance is like, we treat it like it has a disease. That's difficult for us. It's difficult for me. I don't want to repent. When I think about repentance, especially to my wife, it just crawls all over me. It just gets under my skin and it just eats at me. I think it's our pride that stands in the way. We don't want to stoop that low. And when someone repents to us, I think our pride can stand in the way there too. We can so easily move to just a little bit of judgment or just a little bit of shame or some prejudice toward that person. So we balk at repentance and we miss out on the abundance of God's mercy. See, if you move past repentance, you miss the heart of Jesus Christ. Move past repentance and you miss his essence. So here's my proposition for us today. What if we flipped our view of repentance? What if instead of resisting it, we fell in love with repentance. We became a church that was known for our repentance. Fellowship Bible Church, I don't know what's going on over there, but those people are terrible. They're repenting all the time. That were true about us. It must be awful. What if we were known for our repentance? Instead of feeling the weight of shame... Salt is something we get to do that we can't wait to do. We, we celebrate repentance in one another and we grow more and more comfortable with our repentance, our own repentance and the repentance of those around us. And as we grow more comfortable with that, we grow more aware of our brokenness, the places that we lean toward tolerance and idolatry and immorality. We grow more comfortable with our own brokenness, our own need for the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And as we grow more comfortable and we become more aware of our need, we stand in the glorious brilliance, the light of the repentance of Jesus Christ. And then we became more empathetic and compassionate toward others because they're in the same boat we are. What if that were true about this church. That church would change a cynical world. Because the farthest thing we would be doing would be preaching to them. Farthest, that's the farthest thing from their mind if we're offering our own brokenness. We're not yelling at the culture. We're engaging them in the very place that we need Jesus Christ the most. In the very place that they need Jesus Christ the most. What if Jesus were to write us a letter? Or better yet, what if Jesus were to say to us at the threshold of heaven, fellowship, I know your deeds, all of them. And it's your repentance that's beautiful to me. That's what's beautiful. You don't know how much that honors me. You don't know how much that glorifies the work that I did on the cross. Fellowship, your influence has been great. You want to know why? Because you humbled yourself before me. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. To humble ourselves before him and experience his limitless mercy 
toward us. Here's what I invite you to do as we close today. I want to invite you to consider my proposal to us. Just take a minute to do that. The way that I want you to do that is I want to invite you to ask the Spirit of God to show you some place in your life where you need repentance. Just one. There might be many that come to mind for some of you. That's okay too, but go to one. Where is there a place where you just could, before the Lord, offer a moment of repentance, bow the knee before him? And as the Spirit of God makes you aware of that, I want to invite you to move quickly into repentance and experience the mercy that he lavishes upon us. So take just a minute to do that. Father, it is underneath the weight of your message to the church at Thyatira and your message to us that we bow this morning. Bow the knee in humility and in repentance of the areas of our lives that are not like you. Things that you know to be true, that you see, and that you give time to heal. You demonstrate your mercy before your judgment. You don't despise the sinner. You love us and you care so deeply about us that you want freedom for us underneath the burden of sin. You want us to experience that quickly. That's why we would run to you in repentance. And we'd fall in love with it because it's just true about our state, our life on this planet. We need repentance and we will until the day that we go. So I pray that we would move toward it with our spouses, with our kids, with those that are around us at work, even when it's like it just feels silly to apologize that we would do it anyway. Regardless of the response, what that might create, that we would take care of our own hearts before you and that you would be glorified in it because it's out of repentance that you do your incredible work in us and through us. 
And it's in repentance that we find joy and that we find hope for your return. So make us penitent men and women that we might pass into your good pleasure day in and day out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me? I want to send us out with a word of benediction. So grab your stuff, stand up. I'll send us out with this. The ultimate gift to the overcomers, Jesus Christ, the morning star. Ultimate gift to those who are faithful is Jesus Christ. So you may not get wealth. Uh, you may not get social acclaim. You may not fit into the inner sanctum of the society or the social circles of our city. You may even one day lose your job because you love Jesus. But you will get Jesus Christ. And he is all we need. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.